Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week we Twin Peaks Fire Walk Carlito's Way. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick them between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other will have two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, Origins. And I am Adam Thomas, The Beginning. This is actually a prequel episode, so listen to this episode, and then go all the way back to episode 1, and it all makes sense. Yep, gonna be a whole lot of, should we really fucking do this? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, it could work. Who knows? It won't last like over 200 episodes. That'd be awful if that were to happen. Oh, man. Oh, I'd know I was a failure then. <laughs> the look of everybody to the Double Edge Devil Bill, where uh, every week Adam and I cover a good and bad feature based around a topic. Uh, we pick randomly the two movies, subjectively based on our own choices, at the end of every episode, so stay tuned for the end of this particular episode for picking for next week's show. And uh, the topic we're doing today is prequels, which is um, because uh, there is a new uh, Fantastic Beasts movie coming out this particular week, uh, we contemplated, you know, what we should do. And I mean, if you're curious at all why we're not doing a Harry Potter episode, on a completely random note, uh, trans rights are human rights. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And uh, fuck J.K. Rowling, of course, as well, yes. Yeah, oh well, yeah, for sure, for sure. And it's kind of, you know, unfortunately, we're tying this into Fantastic Beasts that stars a very, very problematic star. Yes, I know Jude Law, you hate him so much. I'm just not a fan just, of him in general. Yep, right? nope. I know, it's just that's the problem. Right, 100%. Right. I, I love they removed one problematic star, only for another one to become problematic right before the movie mm-hmm. came out. It's it's very odd. Uh, but, you know, prequels, we decide, are sort of an interesting topic in general just because they often get derided. I don't think people really use the term prequel until around, like, the Star Wars prequel trilogy came out um, in the late 90s through the mid-2000s. And um, it kind of got a bad rap, I think, because those movies weren't necessarily the most successful at it, though prequels had been made prior to that point. Do you think making a prequel is an inherently bad idea, Adam? I mean... (sighs) Yes and no, in a way. Like, if there's more of a story to tell then I'm fine with it. It's it's the ones that feel forced, like just for cash grab that, that, you know, and unfortunately that sort of seems to be the case more than often not to where it just makes me want to give up on the whole prequel game. I mean, admittingly, there's so many issues inherently with just doing a sequel. Cause it's like, oh, you're following up on a, a previous movie that a lot of people really liked and trying to kind of like up the ante with like, what's the next adventure with a prequel. It's even more hard because it's like, oh, now we're finding out how these characters got to this original station, it becomes the problem of, like, you know, to quote the Patton Oswalt thing about the Star Wars prequels. It's just like, oh, hey, you like this person? Well, now you get to see him as a little kid. And it's like, I don't want, like, rock salt, ice, and milk. I just want the ice cream. I want the stuff I love. 
I, so I, I think that's an inherent problem. It's just like we don't necessarily need all these explanations. But I think in the best case scenario, it's not so much like, oh, like we're all just leading up to like finding out specific details, uh, how those came to be, and then eventually getting to the point where we initially introduced the characters in the original movie. It's more about like, oh, let's see what this actually adds to the other movie that we've already seen previously, what new information that actually gives you a bit more to chew on. Yeah, and I'd say out of our two picks, one of them does that in a very bizarre, interesting way, and the other one doesn't do it at all. No, no, they don't. And we we might as well get to our two picks, uh, which uh, you had the bad ones, but we should mention our patrons, edgelords over there at patreon.com slash gedbpod end up choosing on a poll for your bad pick for this which was carlito's way rise to power um and then we'll be talking about my good pick we picked at the end of the last episode which was twin peaks Firewalk with me uh two like you mentioned very different takes on doing a prequel to say the least uh but we're gonna start with the bad one here with carlito's way rise to power this is the story of east harlem italians puerto ricans and blacks, all in a three-sided war. And then one day, that's what made the peace. The dope. Everybody working together in the business. Come on, Carlito, what do you do? Hustling, thieving, anything for dollars and them days. What I tell you, one day you're gonna meet the right kind of man. <laughs> you wanna start making some real money, Charlie? When you take something that's mine, Spit in my face. You stay away from my sister, you understand me? You was in on it. So you're responsible. I'm putting contracts on you, Rocco, and Earl. We can't go to war with this guy. You making decisions for me and Rocco now, we work for you? You are going to hand us everybody. Otherwise, going down with him. Carlito, Carlito. Every day I want you to remember one thing. You still alive. Because me. So, Carlito's Way Rise to Power uh, came out September 7th, 2005, straight to video. Oh, big shocker. Big shocker. Yeah. <laughs> what? The production value was so good on this. I, I'm, yeah. I was so shocked. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this is a prequel to the 1993 film Carlito's Way, which interesting origin story for that movie is that Carlito's Way, the 1993 Brian De Palma film, is based on a novel by Edwin Torres, but not the one called Carlito's Way. Because Edwin Torres, he wrote Carlito's Way as the original novel, but then had the sequel After Hours. And most of what is in the 1993 film is based on After Hours. But Brian De Palma didn't want to confuse it with the Martin Scorsese movie called After Hours, so he changed it to the title of the first novel. But this movie is technically more of an adaptation of the actual novel called Carlito's Way. (laughs) Right. Uh... Yeah, and you know, just uh, <laughs> let's be fully transparent. You had not seen the original up until no. uh, watching for this show, and I want to get kind of what you thought of that before we get into the prequel. Yes, we should definitely talk about the original Brian De Palma movie. I hadn't seen it until doing research for the show, and uh, I think that movie's pretty great, pretty fun. I mean, with the caveat of obviously um, Al Pacino was playing a Puerto Rican gangster, and yeah. he has a very particular accent, which I think for most of the movie he like dips away from like earlier on, particularly during the, the narrations that the book ends, which is my biggest problem with that movie. I do not like the weird book ends with like the, the spoilers, the dying monologue, particularly at the end, mm-hmm. where it's just like, Oh, it looks like my numbers up closing up shop. Everybody. Oh, everything's gone. It's just like, okay. 
right, right, right. <laughs> Alcom temp. But right. uh, I mean, it's a really investing story. I really like it's like that Brian De Palma style that like is always so immersive. Particularly, so many shots of people walking around that are just so mm-hmm. fucking stellar. Or like the the opening sort of like big scene um, at the one bar he goes to after he gets out of prison with like the big shootout that happens, and then the subway chase at the end are two phenomenal sequences. And Brian De Palma knows how to cast Sean Penn as like a piece of shit. Who knew he'd be so good at that kind of part? Right. And he's absolutely fantastic. He's as fucking a piece great. Of shit. Yes, he so is. Uh, but you're a big fan of the original movie yourself. I am. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I have all the same feelings you have about it. Uh, Al Pacino's accent is ridiculous. Honestly, other than his accent being bad, he's still performing the shit out of it. He's still very good at it. It is very well shot. Brian De Palma, I mean, can make the most boring mundane things seem exciting if he wants to, like you said, just them walking around or close up on people's faces or, you know, that slow yet methodical uh, subway chase scene. Like it's really exciting. And it's just guys ducking behind walls. Basically it helps a lot though, that Al Pacino, whenever I say walking, he's more like dancing and walking simultaneously throughout that movie. It's so, Oh great. yeah, definitely. Way- <laughs> definitely, definitely. He reminds me of the pimp in the Simpsons when Homer goes to New York. <laughs> or he's but, disco yeah. stewing it a bit yeah he's definitely again disco stewing the shit out of it it's almost like he's listening to music that nobody else is in his head but that's you know it, again it's a very well done movie it's it's in it's one of Pacino's greats I just the, how is Jay Hernandez who is of Hispanic descent copying the Al Pacino voice somehow more offensive to me. He's trying to less do an actual Puerto Rican accent to make up for that and doing a bad impression of a bad Puerto Rican accent. Thus, it's even worse. And he's like, I believe Jay Hernandez is Mexican-American. I believe that's I read up on. Yes. Right, yes. And um, it's it's a really hard task to fill, obviously, the shoes of an Al Pacino. Um, it doesn't help also that this movie is um what's the word uh god awful <laughs> this is what? one of the worst movies we've done for the fucking show i was no. just like so like it, it, it's so terrible and it's not even like exactly him because like basically this tells the story of how carlito was originally imprisoned in like the late 60s even though this movie is so doing a bad like 70s exploitation style thing with its style it's like oh, such yeah. and especially weird considering the original movie takes place in 1975 and this is like 1969 to 70. There's a point to really mark it where a hippie woman is in a bar talking about like, oh man, we just took a ride from Woodstock over here to do the big protest, the protest against what? Vietnam, man. Like, oh, fuck me. <laughs> what are we doing? So fucking bad. But Adam, why did you particularly choose this one besides the fact that it is so fucking bad? <laughs> I mean, that's basically it. It absolutely fits the criteria. I mean, in every way possible. I mean, it, yes, it's a a bad movie, but it's a yeah, it's a terrible prequel to a really good film. You know, I I did the thing where I watched the original, and then the very next night I watched this. Like I've seen this before, uh, probably right around when it first came out, back when I used to rent anything that came out, but. It hadn't been since then. So rewatching it after rewatching the original for the first time in a while too, uh, I was just sort of dumbstruck by the whole thing, like jaw to the floor, but not in a way like I can't believe this is doing this, but almost in a way like my face fell asleep. Um, it's just it's so bad. It's so so bad, and yeah, Jay Hernandez doing the Pacino accent, but also like the wardrobe choices with him, especially his hair. 
Like, I don't know if, I think it's a wig. I'm not 100% sure. It's really bad. And then it's like, Mario Van Peebles is so cute. But his brother, that character, is just so one note. I have so much to say about that brother character. We'll get to Oh, that. there's a lot. Oh, there's um, a lot. Yes. Yeah, but basically, like you mentioned, Mario Van Peebles is one of, like, this trio who meet in prison in this opening sequence where they're in, like, the biggest prison cell I've ever seen. When the cop comes over and fucking, like, the other guy, the Italian guy, Michael Kelly, who's a great character actor who you've seen. Oh, yeah, he's great. House of Cards and other things. He's the one person who, like, oh, you feel like a natural human person as opposed to a weird caricature person. (laughs) Because he's just naturalistic enough an actor. But he's making fucking pasta. And he's just like, hey, yo, how about you have some of this garden? No problem. Like, they've so taken over the prison system that they have, like, a fucking giant warehouse area for their fucking cell that all three of them are in. Right, and it's like, for, for what? For, for why? So they can cook? Like, you never get the idea that any three of these guys are anybody that's really super important, like, before they were in jail. Like, they say, it, even in the opening sort of scene with the three, that Carlito's just, a like, a weed-dealing punk. Uh, Michael Kelly's sort of, like, an underling of the mob. And uh, Mario Van Peebles' character it just is a book runner, a numbers guy. Like, how did they get this such special treatment to where, I mean, you're telling me I got to go to New York to get tomatoes? That's what I'm telling you. But that guard is like, hey, look, it's better than when my wife cooks it. Hey, ooh. Yeah, 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 oh, hey. <laughs> right. Oh. But, but, but these three meet up in prison, and then after they get out, they start to just, like, take over the mob world of Harlem. And they become, like, the dynamic trio, just solving all the problems. While dealing heroin. Right, right, while dealing heroin, obviously, in part because of the connections that Michael Kelly has with uh, the Burt Young character. Yeah, Cousin um, Pauly, um, sure, uh, sure. Yeah, of course, of uh, <laughs> Artie Badalota, which I love the fact that they introduce him in an Italian restaurant eating some kind of pasta, but it's clearly not any sauce on that pasta. It's just like buttered noodles, basically. Oh, it's, it's clearly buttered noodles and then eating leaves of spinach. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure was just the demand yeah. of Burt Young, just like, I will only eat this on set. <laughs> it's like, okay. Yep. All right, whatever you need, man. You're one of the top stars in this movie, unfortunately. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, And they, ha- they have some run-ins with some other mob people, particularly uh, Sean Combs as Hollywood Nicky, who's like the local like big black gangster that's uh, on the block. And uh, he's introduced with an espresso machine inside of his car. And he's drinking yep, and a rotary phone. Right, and a rotary phone in there, of course, yes. And I can't emphasize enough how much, like, Sean Combs looks so much like he regrets being here. Like, every single shot is just a man full of regret about, like, why did I sign up for this? I fucking hate that I'm here. I'm so much better than this. And honestly, as not good an actor as he is, yes, you are. You have some self-respect. Why are you here, Sean? Right, right. Because he's not that good of an actor. I mean, he's fun in small little bit parts. Like I'd say, get him to the Greek, or like it's always sunny in Philadelphia when mm-hmm. he shows him in that. Like he's he's fine, but other than that, no, he's he's terrible. And I mean, man, do they try to give him monologuing scenes? And it is just some of the worst shit I've ever heard. I don't care if it's a hundred dollars or a dollar stealing from me. I take it serious. Now give me a cream soda. <laughs> That scene, it's edited so poorly with the way he shoots that guy, where he just, like, he takes out his gun, the guy looks over, and then for a while we're just focused on, like, the woman who was sitting next to that guy. We don't see that dead body until, like, Sean walks into frame and looks down, and then there's a wide shot, just like, what the fuck is this? I mean, it was just laying in a pool of, like, looks like ketchup, basically. 
Yeah, it's it's very very. Uh, in case you couldn't tell, straight to DVD prequel didn't have a high budget. I'm sorry, folks, but it does not look great. <laughs> does have a very very awkward sex scene though. Yes, can't forget right. about that. <laughs> Which is another baffling thing about this movie that like Carlito has a romance. Uh, with uh, Jacqueline DeSantis as Leticia, which is so weird because in the original movie, it's established that he had a romance with someone before he went to prison, the Penelope Ann Miller character. Right. And it's like, oh, naturally you'd see like them meet and all this other stuff in this prequel. No mention of this woman. At all. No indication she's like exists at all. (laughs) And they they, they blew so many chances to have it happen. Like Leticia works at this club or they go out to the strip club all the time and stuff. And we know that she's a dancer, the Penelope Ann Miller character. Like, could have introduced her anywhere. Nope. So my question is then, so apparently between 1969, 1970, whenever this movie actually takes place, because then he does, I believe if I'm correct, five years in prison. Right. Which he should like immediately after this movie go to jail and then eventually right. we get, and, and jail turns him into Al Pacino, clearly. That's what yeah, happens. Right. Which is that, that's a hardcore jail then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, I, I aged 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah to a different race and nationality altogether. <laughs> um, but so Leticia apparently dies, I'm guessing, or he just, she leaves him and there's no mention again after the very uh, like insulting ending of just like oh look I made it to paradise which was the whole thing in the original movie they wants to like leave this life and go to paradise like the whole point is that he doesn't go to paradise right that ruins the whole point of the original ending <laughs> oh no yeah dude this movie if watched back you know like I said with the original it, it it's it's a slap to the face like it makes everything, every decision that happens in the original completely null and void, if you were to take this as canon, which, you know, don't. Just don't do that. If you if you like Carlito's Way, you do not need to see Carlito's Way rise to power to add to your enjoyment. If anything, it's just going to perplex you. Trust Adam Thomas, moderator of the Carlito's Way wiki, who yep. has all the character pages set up and everything. I do. This is, not, yep. this is, Carlito's, this is Carlito's Way Legends, not yep. an actual canon story. Right, exactly. They try so hard to have like the cool soundtrack from the early seventies, and it's just like almost sounds like bad Guitar Hero cover versions of songs. Right, yes. like it's just so fucking bad. But I want you to go ahead and get talking about Reggie. Yes, Reggie, um, played by apologize, sir, if I mispronounce your name, Mister Matume Gant. Don't don't you dare. Apologize. <laughs> well, no, because the, the whole thing is that uh, this character Reggie is the brother of the uh, Marvin People's character Earl, who after they've been you know doing all sorts of great like rising up the crime ladder and all this other stuff, he's like you know what I'm getting I'm gonna retire and marry my old lady and just go off to this island. I want to leave all my contacts and stuff to my younger brother, so I want you guys to show him the ropes to Michael Kelly and. Uh, Jay Hernandez and Reggie comes in and his whole thing is like, Oh man, I'm, you know, it's the seventies. So I go to a lot of black power meetings, but also I'm a horrible alcoholic and a womanizer and I annoy everyone around me. This character like takes over so much of the movie after a certain point, because he's the main focus of the plot is fucking Carlito and Rocco trying to get his shit together. Even though he does just constant stupid bullshit that especially interferes with like the Burt Young character's son, uh, played by Dominic uh, Lombardozzi, who's uh, another character actor you've seen in a bunch of these things, but uh, especially crime mafioso movies. He's all over Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, yeah, yeah. You've seen him. Yeah, yeah, right, sure. right. But Reggie is, like, the, the acting for Mr. Gaunt is fucking 
awful. It's so much of like the most over the top gesture, especially the drunk acting at that club when he tries to like feel up on that stripper is some of the most awful acting I've even seen in like straight to video movies, which is saying a lot. <laughs> like this is even sub straight to video fucking movie level acting. It is so fucking terrible and so much the plot hinges on him, especially like the, the climax ends up having like you, you guys are getting fucking killed because of this guy's actions. And this he's like such a fucking like cousin Oliver. For this fucking stupid mob movie. Who just like messes everything up at every chance. There's nothing redeemable about this character. And he's fucking like annoying to be around. Right, exactly. It's a half-cocked idea. Where they're like, oh yeah, so his younger brother's gonna come in. And he's gonna be a problem. And you know, and it's just like you said. It's like instant chaos. With this guy. Like he instantly walks in. And like you know, the first time you meet him, he's telling Mario Man Peebles basically to go fuck himself, and you know, I don't need shit from you, and blah, blah, blah. And then Carlito's buying him suits, and then they're at the club, and he's wearing his old gear again. It's just, it's nonstop spitting in the mafia guy's face, because he won't shake his hand. Like, what the fuck is going on here? He's one of those characters where the second he came on screen, I'm like, I really want this character to die. Like, I really don't like this character. Um, it, it has nothing to do with any of the politicking of it or anything. It's just such a poorly written character. The politicking doesn't also help that, like, one of the f- prominent black characters is, like, this womanizing asshole who especially is, like, oh, like, Carlito dresses him down, like, all you do is, like, try and fuck ladies and drink all the time and go to those black power meetings. Just like, what What are we saying? No, I completely agree. Then they just do the characters even dirtier by his ultimate end. Like, what happens to him? It's so dumb and wasted. And also, why are we casting Luis Guzman in this movie? Yeah, because he was in the original movie in, you know, the typical Luis Guzman part, which is fun in that movie. I love any time him. Oh, yeah, it's great. Just, like, talk. He's, he's like, the, the typical, like, affable, lovable Luis Guzman as opposed to... Yeah, come to on, a bodyguard for you. Why is this a bad idea? You know, right. Like, yeah, the exact only you want to see Luis Guzman do. He's so great yep. at it. As opposed to here where he's just like, oh, hey, I'm a drug-addicted hitman who will murder people and just like, Louise, this isn't you, buddy. You're trying to stretch yourself, but this just, it, it feels so weird. Yeah, he's a cokehead. Yeah, where he's really a drug addict, yet, like, likes to skin people alive, yet, for some reason, after, like, 24 hours of meeting him, he's got such high respect for Carlito, and you're just like, what the, f- yeah, heck, let me drive your car, it's the best car I've ever seen, and you get that kind of, like, stare down, Whoa. Like, it's just so stupid. And then, like, gee, Carlo Esposito, you're so much better than this, too. To be fair, this like, was at a point where he hadn't had Breaking Bad yet. That's true. Was just, yeah, he was, like, the most he had was, like, oh, I'm, like, bit characters in Spike Lee movies prior to this. Like, after, like, Breaking Bad, he doesn't need any of these bullshit. But this is, like, right before. I'm sure this is him thinking, like, God, I gotta get something fucking better than this. And thankfully uh, he did. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So you loved the movie. Is what it's you're so great, so wonderful. I mean, it, if nothing else, it's like you said. I'm glad it gave me the excuse to finally watch Carlito's Way, uh, which yeah. does so many of these same things. So much like even we talked about like the Reggie character. He's such a pale imitation of like Sean Penn's character in the original, right? Who has a similar role of just being like the dude who Al Pacino's like, oh no, I'm trying. Like he's great, guys. Don't worry about. It. He's he's not, he's on the level. He's my buddy, and he's like a fucking psychopath who does stupid things. But you can believe it because Sean Penn fully embodies this guy. Makes him a three dimensional ass asshole who you totally see like why he does these horrible things and why he's such an awful piece of shit but it's kind of entertaining to watch and also doesn't help that he has like the best hair possible oh, it's great hair. Great it's hair. so fucking great terrible hair it, it's it, so it, 
how insulted did you feel? And it's such a simple thing, but you know, when Pacino gets out of jail in the first one, he's like, oh, you know, I'm the king of the world. The world is my oyster. And he's going through all those catchphrases. Then they let Jay Hernandez do it at the end of this one. Mm-hmm. The same speech. You're like, why? What? That's the thing you're tying in? <laughs> like, that's the moment? They're like, oh, okay. Yeah, Carlito. I get where that came from now. Because none of this other shit is ever talked about or mentioned in the original. So what the fuck? That's the weird thing is sometimes the movie wants to give you like specific things about like, oh, this is the origins of how he's able to like get those catchphrases or whatever. And then other times like the Penelope Ann Miller thing, they're just like, oh, we don't care about the original movie. Just like pick a side. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, what are you going to do? Yep. So best prequel ever made, baby. So great. Uh, don't you feel so much more appreciation now? You can go back to Carly Joe's way like, oh, of course. All these oh, things. Yeah. That uh-huh. so oh, man. Beautifully all of that stuff that happened in that hour and 45 minute movie that does not have anything to do with this one. Great. <laughs> this two and a half hour long movie that doesn't even bother with that bullshit. Yeah, good. <laughs> and, and and also, like like I mentioned, some of the bad filmmaking here. Going from like a Brian De Palma to Mr. Michael Bergman, who was a producer on the original film and produced a few Al Pacino movies as well prior to this. Um, it's so just poorly put together. It's, it's crazy. How do you fuck up the opening black and white slow motion thing that bad? Right. Where there's like this montage sort of, of just like Jay Hernandez doing his terrible impression of the Carlino way accent. It's, it's, it goes by so weirdly quick. It's like a rushed Oscar in memoriam montage. It's just like, <laughs> wait, what are we doing? Wait, we're going really fast by this. And like they show all these real foes at the beginning and then contrast it with the most studio lot like alleys that we see. It's like the same two street corners on the Warner Brothers lot. <laughs> That they could only shoot in because some other big production was happening. I, I'm almost 100 percent positive that's accurate too. I'm I, I'm convinced while watching that movie that the same alley was used for like three or four different alleys just with different yeah. dressing. Yes, I mean <laughs> the ones. That, it's like no, guys. I'm sorry. Transformers is filming here. You can film over on this corner of the lot, just this right. corner with like this alleyway and this street view. That's all you can just, do. Just move the trash cans around. Nobody will tell. Put a thing in the window. It's a different building. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of that. <laughs> uh, well, Adam, we have a lot to talk about with the other movie. I don't think we have much else to say, but if you have any final thoughts on Carlito's Way, Rise to Power. Look, like I said, I was tasked with picking a bad prequel. I think I hit the nail on the fucking head. Like, it's a terrible movie. Pales in comparison to the original and adds nothing to the story. I mean, it hits every button that we would want for to cover for this type of thing. It's it's awful. It's not streaming anywhere. I actually had to pay to rent this fucking thing. It's just it. Don't even bother going out of your way to to see it unless you literally are a glutton for punishment, or if you're you know one of our long timers who likes to see the movies we see before listening to the show. Even then, though, you could probably skip this one, guys. It's uh, it's terrible. No, yeah, there's not much really to this one. It's a forgotten for a reason, and I'm at least glad you're right that this like kind of fits perfectly as a forgettable bad prequel that nobody asked for and does all the wrong things pretty much that they would usually do. And the way I would sort of describe the look and feel of this movie, it feels so much like a preview on a like 2005 era DVD. That's what it was. I've seen yes. this trailer. Yes. Coming soon from Warner Brothers' home premiere. 
See the origins of one of the most notorious gangsters in film history. <laughs> oh, fuck. The, the, the things that in the, in the time of DVDs, you're just like, skip, skip. Oh, I have to push the oh, menu button? Skip, oh, skip. God. Oh, yeah. How many times that Artisan logo come up? You're like, oh, Christ. <laughs> you gotta skip. <laughs> oh, yes, for sure. But, uh, yeah, Carlito's Way, Rise to Power, not very good at all. Hot take. But... We have a much different movie to talk about here. A theatrically released film, though based on a TV show, uh, Twin Peaks, Firewalk With Me. There is no other person who could have known where it was. Did Bobby give you this? Or is there someone new? Your Laura disappeared. It's just me now. You made me write it all down. She doesn't like that. How do you know what she likes? Who am I? I don't know. You look just like my Laura. So, Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me uh, came out August 28th, 1992, from director David Lynch, and is based on uh, the TV series that he created with Mark Frost. And this acts as, obviously, sort of a prequel to that TV series, so I guess it's pretty natural. We should talk about that TV show, Adam. I'm curious, what is your relationship with uh, the original Twin Peaks, since two seasons, at least, that initially aired? Uh, I came into it very, very late. I, you know, knew its reputation. Obviously, I knew who David Lynch was already by that time. Uh, you know, my brother loved it. My One of my uncles really loved it. So it has kind of always had this big daunting reputation for me where I'm like, oh, man, if I watch this and I don't like it, you know, it's one of those, especially in like sort of the genre community where it's almost like a sacred thing. It's, you know, Twin Peaks. It's just, it is what it is. It's important. So I probably actually watched it in its entirety, first two seasons, maybe eight to ten years ago. Probably the first time uh, when it was on Netflix, all of it. And, um, I mean, I, I loved it. I Well, no. Right. I There's loved, no always nastiness you know, between peaks. Yeah, right. There's, yeah. <laughs> I love the first season. First season is great. For, I would argue the first season and then episodes one through nine of the second season, yes. and then the series finale is the initial. Yeah, one. I'd uh, say there's that. twelve episodes in between those where there uh, were shocker. David Lynch wasn't around because he was making Wild at Heart, and uh, yeah. they did a lot of other shit that just didn't work. So that's that's yeah. always kind of the trouble. And mainly, I didn't see it until probably around the same time. Though admittingly, it's more because I wasn't really around for Twin Peaks airing, but I had a similar sort of, like, thing where, like, it had such a big reputation, and I got into David Lynch more in high school, and I'd heard, like, oh, it's so great, and I watched that on, before it was on Netflix, on the, like, CBS streaming site, which was terrible. It either worked perfectly or did not work at all. So I would, like, oh, let's see if I can stream an episode of Twin Peaks today. Nope. I'll wait for tomorrow, I guess. Uh, but um, I loved the show as well, with the caveat of those episodes. But at the same time, the the ones that worked, it, especially considering that, like I wasn't as cognizant of television around that time, 
it still really works with like the fact that it's parodying like Dynasty and other soap opera things like that, kind of being that. But it also works on its own. It's just this weird, interesting mythology you're really wrapped up in to follow, and that's what made it so popular back in 1990 when that first season aired and everyone was so curious like who killed Laura Palmer what's happening with this and the CBS at the time forced David Lynch to reveal that in the second season which he never wanted to do and uh, after that happened he kind of you know left into the wallet that heard and was kind of disheartened by that whole experience and uh, the show suffered for it because they didn't know that was going to happen and so then this prequel came about David Lynch actually wanted to make like a trilogy of movies about Twin Peaks because he wanted to go back to that world, and he'd gotten the green light to basically do that, and Firewalking was going to be the first part of that. Mark Frost, who created with him, wasn't involved in this one, and rather than do, like, a sequel that would pay off the cliffhanger of the second season, uh, he decided to do a prequel that went back and told the story of Laura Palmer, who obviously died in the pilot episode, and her body washed up, and that was the impetus for the whole series from there, and uh, because people were kind of hoping for some kind of resolution, and they got this... Very different, very much darker even than the original television show version of things uh, with the prequel. Um, it was really hated at the time. Uh, really despised. People didn't like it. But it's gotten a bit more of a cultural appreciation. What do you think of Firewalk with me, though, Adam? Man, I don't know. <laughs> Firewalk with me, no, no I don't, let's put it this way. I would never say I hate this movie. I, ever. I, but I always bounce back and forth uh, between it's pure genius or it's absurd lunacy. And maybe it's both. But I'll tell you what, it's never... Firewalk Me is not a movie I ever watch and am bored by. <laughs> like, ever. There are so many weird things happening in this movie. Like, it, it, this. let's put it this way. If somebody hadn't seen a David Lynch movie, this wouldn't be the one I'd start them off with. No. No. Uh, because I think it'd be a lot of, why the fuck do you like this guy? Because uh, this is a wacky fucking movie, man. It's crazy. It's surreal as surreal can be, at least at this time for David Lynch. Bizarre, bizarre, bizarre. It's it's all the weirdness of the first season and you know the first half of the second, kind of really is thrown together in a package and just given to you for two hours. Well. Also keeping in mind that the big thing this one mostly removes is also kind of like that quirky sense of humor that also attracted people. That's not here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is... that is. It's. I would argue it's a bit there in like the first 30 minutes when we have like the investigation. The Chris, Chris Isaac, Isaac. Kiefer Sutherland bit. Yeah, that... Right. It is there, especially with like the, the dancing girl. Right, and David Lynch obviously coming in as a Gordon Cole character who's always great. Just like, Cooper... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the stuff with the cops where you know, grabs one by the nose and all that stuff. Like there's there's some bits there that are fun. Uh but yeah, it's a really fucking crazy movie. Like it's crazy. I think I was also like when I saw this, I agree I was in a similar boat of just like I'm I'm not sure what exactly to think about this, partially because like some of that humor was gone and replaced with just right up trigger warning, um, this movie goes to dark places about particular like sexual assault and incest and a lot of horrible, horrible thematic stuff as it goes along. That's like really upsetting to watch. And I don't blame anybody for like feeling uncomfortable with it. That's how I really felt when I first watched it. But the more I've seen it, the more I really appreciate, especially the fact that like with a prequel, we talked about this, that so much of the problem is, Oh, we're explaining things we don't need to explain necessarily, as opposed to like, a lot of the stuff that's doled out here was revealed in Twin Peaks about Laura Palmer. Like, oh, it turned out she 
had like uh, drug issues and that she um, was an underage prostitute, basically some of these things. And the, the movie does such a great job of like really giving like less about like, Oh, here's how Laura Palmer got to this horrible state as much as we're going to actually give this impetus for our series more character. We're going to give her an actual like fleshed out story about that's horrible to watch and witness, but at the same time it has so much like of her perspective and the various issues that she had and gives her an actual voice, which I think is in retrospect, I think a very necessary thing that only enriches the show, particularly as it went to the return, which you know you haven't seen the the recent season that came out. No, haven't got the chance, nope. Yeah, but uh, I think the, the the weird thing is like the, because this was so hated at the time, David Lynch was still like, okay, when I come back to this, Firewalk with Me is so fucking crucial to the return. Like, there's so much elements of this movie there, and it it makes sense, especially just that like giving Laura Palmer more of a like a narrative and fleshed out makes the series work so much better because you realize all the stuff that she's gone through. It definitely works as like a prequel you watch after you watch the first two seasons. Like, don't start with Firewalk with Me. That's a really bad place to start for, like, the series. But I think it enriches that experience going back to it. Would you agree with any of that, maybe? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, No, no. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, if you are a Twin Peaks fan or if you want to be sort of really encased or engaged with the lore of it, I mean, Firewalk for me is absolutely essential viewing. I would not also start with it. Uh, I think you'd be making a huge, huge mistake. Uh but I, you know, without having seen season three, I would definitely watch season one and two, most of season two, then Firewalk with me, and then go on to season three. Like I said, this is this is such a dark, sort of depraved, weird movie um, that I, I do feel it's important, especially when it comes to Laura Palmer character, because it does flesh her out a little more. She's not just the corpse or, you know, the, sort of the flashback character. She, You get, you know the full picture of her, whether troubled, good, bad, whatever it is, you, you get a full character, um, such as much as it can be in a David Lynch movie. But I was kind of nervous when you actually picked this because I do have such weird feelings towards it. Like I said, I don't hate it. I don't think I love it either. It's just, I'm kind of like, it's an interesting sort of experiment of film where it's a David Lynch is always kind of experimenting and trying new things, but, that it's a prequel to a dormant sort of television series that they somehow got financed for mainstream studio release. And, you know, it's, it's just for all those factors alone, it makes it sort of a gem that you got to see, but going into it, the movie as a whole, it's kind of an assault on the senses in many different ways. Like you said, there is the sexual sort of assault stuff and the pedophilia incest sort of angles and things like that, which are very, troublesome to watch especially because you know ray wise in particular is really going for it he's really disturbing right um, and also uh, cheryl lee is really putting so much into like being uh, she's like, particularly she, the, the, she's soap opera acting and it works for this type of well i well i don't think that's actually what she's doing here so i don't think it's quite soap opera i think it's very much just like a young woman who's been traumatized to such a horrible degree that she's just genuinely like unresponsive. Like the scene where where like Ray Wise comes up to her at the dinner table and it's just like, oh, you haven't washed your hands, your fingernails are so dirty. Her reactions are so mortifying. She's like, oh man, this girl is very big. So too. much. Right, they're big. They're very big. Yeah. Right. I would argue That's Ray I mean. Wise is also going big at the same oh, time. Are you kidding me? 
Ray Wise is ham. Yeah, he's going straight ham. But I, uh, I wouldn't even say it's ham, though. It's it's more like operatic. Yeah, that's a good way like to put it. Yeah, that's a good way to yeah, put it. Acting almost like to the the rafters kind of thing with what we're doing here, where it's it's like dealing with like obviously all the symbology and stuff like that. These actors are definitely trying to be like, no, we are performing as like sort of big, massive figures, while at the same time telling a very intimate story. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a good way to put it, and that adds to the sort of the strangeness of the whole piece as well, and the tragedy um, that's inherent. And the tragedy, it's, of it's, course. It, yeah, it's yeah. just the story of this woman falling apart, and you like, and it's all the more tragic because you know where it's going to go. But because you're so invested in her story, you're just like, I don't want, you want to reach out and like get Laura Palmer out of this. You don't want to see what ultimately happens to her happen. But yet that's the brilliance of the movie in a weird, perverse way. You want it to happen so you can, you know where it's going because you want Twin Peaks as well. Because you care so much about what happens to the characters in the aftermath of her death in a really bizarre, macabre way. You're not rooting for it or die, but you're ready for it. Well, and also it makes you feel so much more invested when, like, at the the, the pilot for Twin Peaks is such a beautiful like oh, example great. of how to like set up everything, particularly with how many characters just like break down, like Ray Wise or Lara Flynn Boyle is the original version of that character and stuff like that, where they find out this news and it's devastating because Laura Palmer was like, oh, she's the homecoming queen, she's this like character who everyone thought like, oh, she's perfect, she's great, everyone loves her, she loves everybody, it's such a great thing, and then finding out like, oh, on top of all of this, she had such a troubled home life. That, like, it makes you, if you go back and watch the Twin Peaks pilot, like, you're crying along with them. Oh, yeah. It's just like, Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, dude. Well, I, I mean, yeah, the Twin Peaks pilot's one of my absolute favorite pilots of all time, period, across all television. I, it's so unlike anything else that, well, came before or since, really. Uh, but, yeah, it, it just, you know, now, now I kind of want to go back and watch the series. I got to get on to season three, like, what the fuck? I, I I very much I really want to talk about that maybe as a Patreon thing about the return. Yeah, but like, I don't know, man. I don't like doing what you want to do. Um, but anyways, well, good point. Um, <laughs> you, you, you haven't done 204 episodes of this show yet. This is the prequel, right? right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I t- I tell you what the fuck we're watching. Um, but um, it, it's such a bizarre film. Uh, I mean, it does at its you know at its core have the it's the story of sort of the deconstruction of everyday America and what young girls might be perceived to be in small town America and sort of her deconstructing due to some of those pressures and also due to outside forces. And I mean, it's a really, really one of a kind way to tell that story. And for that alone, it's a fascinating movie. And I love also how the movie, like obviously the show, like I love the whole idea of like the black lodge which is obviously yeah. like the, the the red room where everybody is around. And I love the fact, I think this movie, along with The Return, really crystallizes, like, because when you watch the show, obviously, that was the big thing. Everyone's like, what the fuck is with the guy who talks backwards and all this, and Bob and all this other shit? Really, I think my, at least the interpretation I've come to, especially coming back to this movie now, is that all the stuff in, like, The Black Lodge is basically, like, these supernatural forces are a metaphor or a physicalization of, like, intense misogyny because like all of them are like male characters who are like, or if they are female characters, they've been just like sucked in to this lodge by these, like the main sort of people, especially when like the Gambosia thing comes about, yeah. which is like translated as like pain and suffering. It's literally just like, Oh, they want to have like suck any kind of like joy out of people and just get like whatever pain and suffering they can have and have like, that blood strewn on the floor by the end of it. It's like so upsetting, especially obviously like Frank Silva, as Bob is one of the most terrifying villains 
in anything. And all he does is just, like, stare at the camera with his face. It's so upsetting every time he shows up. I mean, yes and no for me on that one. Like, I, okay. I think he's... I think Frank Silva's great when it's just... Like, especially when they're wrapping Laura and you get the different shots between the, you know, the plastic of Ray Wise and then him. Like, I, I think he works best when it's just a flash of him. But when he's... I think Frank Silva really overdoes it. Like I, to me, it's in almost a almost like slapsticky comedy way. It, he's never really worked for me. How does that overdo it in like a David Lynch sense, though? How does that not fit with like a weird David Lynch world? Well, let's put it this way: I never found him. I never found him scary. Like I never found him. Like it's, to go with what you're saying, I never found him terrifying or anything like that. Like it's fine. It works in the context of the of sort of what everybody else is doing. But to me, it, it never was like, oh, this is guys horrifying like never did that I'm, for me i mean i always found that especially the fact like whenever he shows up in laura's room like particularly there's a sequence where like laura walks in he, she sees him like right by her dresser and he just like comes after her because he's like this big sort of like a force that like if you saw him in real life you'd just be like oh he's just like some guy who wears fucking like a canadian tuxedo basically he's all in jean stuff whatever but when you put him in like the specific light that lynch likes to put him in i think it just makes him this unsettling figure that once again he represents like this unrelenting awful misogyny that just immediately wants to destroy people around it, particularly women like at any cost and I think just the contrast of that especially with admittingly Ray Wise is more like authentically terrifying in a way where like if you saw him also you'd be like oh he's just like the neighborhood dad or whatever it's fine but the moment he like arches his eyebrows like when he's looking outside the window he just looks around with his like evil menacing grin it's just like oh this is fucking unsettling I think it's probably the fact that like I guess on his own Bob wouldn't be as unsettling, but I think it's the fact that he has just this influence over, like, Bray Wise and other people that makes it unnerving. I'll maybe have the same thing for, say, like, Michael J. Anderson as the arm, the little, you know, the little person who talks backwards and all that other shit. But I think Bob just is, like, really unnerving, especially, I, I guess I agree with you more when he's just, like, kind of in the room and he suddenly pops up. Yeah, like the classic, you know, behind the chair or dresser or whatever from the original, you know, where he's back there and, like, she the mom catches him. You're like, dude, this is fucking terrifying. Like that to me, it, it works the best. Right. Um, but, but then again, there's like so many other sequences, like all the stuff where we mentioned those characters, like in that one room when like, um, the, there's this whole sequence where David Bowie shows up at Dale Cooper's office with Gordon Cole. Like the first time we see fucking Cooper, he's like, somebody's following me. And he looks at the security cameras and then David Bowie comes in and then they intersperse like David Bowie's weird Louisiana accent with all this footage of like Bob and the arm and these other people like above a gas station for whatever reason. And it's the most weird, bizarre David Lynch shit possible. If it wasn't for that shit, this movie wouldn't work. If it wasn't for just how as bizarre he goes with it, because let's face it, if it wasn't for him just going full full ten, then it would just be okay. Let's get Laura Palmer's origin story. Okay, but the fact that he goes crazy with it too really makes it exciting and it makes it feel almost not like a prequel. It almost feels like a standalone thing. Um, I mean, obviously it's not because you get Daryl Dale Cooper and all that in there, but it's the absurdity and the lunacy and the sort of abstract nature of the storytelling that really makes this work. And I think without that, you just have kind of a maybe movie of the week feel. And are you maybe upset that Dale Cooper doesn't have his big role? Cause that was another controversial thing is that Kyle McLaughlin didn't want to have a huge like role in the movie and stuff like that. He was originally written, I guess like the Chris Isaac Kiefer Sutherland stuff was written to be like Dale Cooper 
and somebody right. else originally, but Kyle McLaughlin didn't want to have a huge part in the movie because, like, he felt kind of betrayed by the series itself. Do you think it still works, though, without him being as involved? Yeah, it's not his story. Like, yeah, he's great in it when he's in it, but it's ultimately the story of Laura Palmer. It's not the Dale Cooper story. I think he's in it just enough and because you know where it's going to go. It's going to become the Dale Cooper story. So, no, it doesn't bother me. What about you? Does that bother you? I mean, not necessarily. I think what's interesting about the the opening, like, 30 minutes or so with, like, Chris Isaac and Kiefer Sutherland is the fact that, like, it's kind of towing a line between, like, it's kind of similar to what you saw on the show, but it's a bit different. And more importantly, with, like, the Chris Isaac version of this, if it was Dale Cooper kind of doing the stuff about, like, oh, the woman who was dancing, like, here's all the coded different stuff, and this is what it means and all those other things. I don't think it would nearly work as much as, like, the intro basically feels like it's David Lynch introducing the idea of, like, oh, you guys want answers to, like, all the stuff that happened in Twin Peaks? Uh, well, here's this guy, this detective, who might be able to solve all of that. Sure, like, he's able to catch all my symbolism and stuff like that. Isn't that, like, don't you feel like you're in comforted hands? Uh, and then that dude disappears. And yep. you don't you don't get that anymore. Because uh, you got to, like, go for the ride of uh, the Laura Palmer story, which goes into, like, all these horrible directions and stuff like that. And even, like, the stuff that's a bit more grounded, quote-unquote, still feels surreal. Like, all the stuff when Laura and Moira Kelly uh, go off to the one bar... And they're in that one right. like, strobe light room where it, it's meant, I think, to parallel a lot of the stuff in the Black Lodge, basically saying, like, oh, that same kind of, like, awful patriarchal, like, shit that, like, these girls are being sucked into is the same way in this, like, actual real space that they enter is, like, it's so unnerving. And the fact that you have, like, the subtitles and that music that just keeps going, like, boom, 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 and that, that, the pink room thing. It's just, like, it's one thing, it's surreal even within, like, the spectrum of, like, oh, this is stuff that's actually happening in the universe. It still feels, like, unsettling and otherworldly. Again, though, it, that's what makes this movie work so well. It is the otherworldly element. It is the abstract nature of the storytelling. And I completely agree with you. I, I like the fact that he sort of teases with the um, precise character. I'm sorry, the name's escaping me in his character name. It was a good name. But I, 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 I like the tease sort of that he's going to figure it out. He knows all this little weird shit and he's, he's going to sort of get to the bottom of it. Him and Kiefer Sutherland, you know, even Kiefer Sutherland, like I could figure it out. I just got to take the body back to Oregon and uh, okay, I think that's a good idea and all this stuff. And then just, yeah, gone. So then you're just left in the sort of what the fuck is going on now sort of aspect of kind of the entire movie. Yeah, Special Agent Chester Desmond, by the way. Yes, yeah, that's a great Chester name. Desmond, yes. Chester Desmond, baby. Um, but yeah, it keeps, it, it, that's the whole point, you know, and that's what makes it so good. It sort of just keeps you guessing constantly. Like, what the fuck is going on? And like we've talked about with David Lynch, too, which is part of his genius. Um, you know, you see it in Mulholland Drive, and, and you know, which we've covered in a lot of his other movies, too. It's kind of up to you to how to interpret it because no matter how you interpret it, you're, it the results are going to be the same. Like it, it, we still know Laura Palmer dies, we still know there's a show based around how she died, who killed her, and and all this stuff. But as far as all the cerebral weird shit, it's up to you to take it how you want it to be because it's not going to change the results of the story. Right, it's more about sort of the the emotional truth of it, as we mentioned with our David Lynch episode, right? Exactly, and I think that's sort of the genius of of Lynch and this movie too, where you know there's like there's going to be several scenes if you've never seen this movie where you're going to be like, what the fuck is happening? And the good thing about it is it doesn't really matter. 
it, it, the, as long as you're able to understand the core idea of the story and things like that, the rest of it is just icing on the cake and whether or not you want to eat the icing is up to you. Or the cream corn, depending on, you know. <laughs> oh God, gross. I know. Oh, <laughs> oh that's that whole, that shot of Ray Weiss eating oh. the cream corn is so upsetting. Yes. So disgusting. Right. But what, what I like also is the fact that it's like you mentioned, um, there's certain things I'm not sure of the significance of like the ring. That becomes a recurring factor. I'm not yeah. sure exactly what that ring means, but the more important truth is that like, oh, the one-armed man has to get that over to Laura for whatever reason to save her. Like the important thing, the crucial thing in that scene is just we want to save Laura. We want her to get out of that situation, this upsetting situation where her father has kidnapped her and this other like young prostitute and is about to murder both of them in theory. And it's just like this sequence where like in many other hands, so much of that material in particular about like Laura and her father would be very uh, like exploitative and awful and unsettling sleazy. and a, and sleazy. Right, sleazy as opposed yeah. to it's unsettling here, but it's so much more focused once again on like Laura Palmer like is breaking down in a way that's very investing and you feel so much more in her perspective to where it's just like when this is like all falling apart and so tragic. Even like another thing, the angel thing, I'm not sure what that means, but I feel somewhat satisfied by the ending of like, you know what, she found this angel that's apparently supposed to protect her. To some degree, I guess. Yeah, like she, I she has that. that at least. I don't know, but I still feel like choked up at that moment. I don't oh, yeah, know exactly great. what it means, but like I'm crying honestly by the end of that. It's it's, it's such a, a weird thing where we like we mentioned the emotional truth is what's so much more important. Uh, but let's go ahead and do some final thoughts since we've been talking about this quite a bit. Adam, your final thoughts on Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Okay, I mean, like I said, I I, I don't I still don't know where I sit with this movie, but it's not a movie that I would ever be like, nah, I don't want to watch that. Like, if somebody wants to watch this with me who hasn't seen it, I will watch it. I'm like, eh, skip to something else. This is a very interesting movie for a, a lot of the reasons we've already talked about. One being a prequel to a dormant television series that had a wide release. Um, the only other instance of something like that happening that I can think of, uh, even though it's not a prequel, would be like the sequel to Firefly Serenity coming out after a dormant franchise. Like, it, just because of fan, you know, sort of love. It, it's a pretty unique situation. It's bizarre david lynchian storytelling at sort of in a weird way one of his most accessible ones uh, as far as like if you're a fan of the show you'll you'll kind of understand it and if you're not a fan of the show i i think you would still get the idea of what's going on as far as just based on the laura palmer sort of of it all it's a bizarre bizarre movie that's very dark very heavy but always entertaining. And that's something you don't usually get a lot of. Like, it, you know, a lot of dark, macabre movies, you'll walk away and be like, oh my God, that was disturbing. And they might stick with you. Uh, this one will stick with you too, but I'd argue it's going to be for several reasons, not just the dark stuff. Uh, I, I just think it's a really interesting movie. I can't say good, I can't say bad, but I can say it's extremely fascinating. Uh, yeah, um, I think with this watch, I've grown from, like, my initial kind of similar trepidatious feelings about it to, I kind of love this movie. I think it's, it's such a beautiful little story that, like like we mentioned, it's such a weird, untraditional prequel. There's even, there are sequel elements, like, we see Kyle MacLachlan in the, the Black Lodge, which was done, like, near the end of the original series at that point. So there's some sequel elements technically kind of put about, but like with any David Lynch thing uh, in Twin Peaks and specifically, like things are non-linear and weird and all over the place, but it still is like so 
fascinating is like we mentioned it's a prequel that actually does enrich the material that it's like preceding to such a wonderful degree with like the uh, first two scenes of Twin Peaks. It does such a great job with that and really immersing you. And I think uh, Cheryl Lee and Ray Wise in particular are so phenomenal in the movie and does such a great job. But also, we didn't mention uh, fucking Angelo Badalamente's music in all of Twin Peaks, but especially this movie, like the Firewalk With Me oh, theme. Yeah, I love it. Incredible. It's so great. I fucking love it so much because it just, it, once again, it speaks to that emotional truth you're trying to experience where you're not going to recognize all the stuff or like get every single bit. And I don't think that's really the point. Um, I don't know if I'd say it's his most accessible, if nothing else, because um, it, there, it gets really heavy and really brutal in a way where like I don't want to go back to this movie all the time because it's just kind of devastating. But at the same time, it's a great example of like a movie that earns that kind of devastation. It earns like the fact that you experience all this horrible shit, but it's for a reason as opposed to feeling like exploitative and shitty. I think it does such a great job with that. And also, if you haven't seen it, uh, there's 90 minutes of deleted scenes from this movie that involves a lot of the characters from the show. Like there's only a couple people like the log lady and some of the other like you know more supernatural characters that show up from the show in here. Uh, but there's 90 minutes of stuff with like Jack Nance and all these other people called Twin Peaks, the missing pieces that unveils a lot of including more David Bowie in a really unsettling fashion. Uh, but enough about that, Adam, because we have to do our weekly segment, the double redo. Double redo. Double. Redo, Yes, the double redo, where every week uh, Adam and I recommend uh, a good and bad double feature for all of you based around the topic that we're doing. So we have uh, each two good movies we'd recommend that you watch and then two one that we'd recommend you avoid for sure related to prequels in this case. And Adam, you're going first on this one. What are your choices? All right. So my choices could be further from each other as far as type of movies. Uh, but I, I really enjoy them both, particularly, um, you know, as have we've mentioned several times on the show, Thomas and I will do movie nights, and we were doing a thing where we were going through several series that we had seen. Uh, so we eventually went through the Purge movies, which I had only ever seen parts of the th- third one and most of the, f- and all of the first one. So we went through them all, watched them all, and uh by the time we got to the fourth one, which is called The First Purge, which is the dumbest name. It's so yeah. hard. You're like, yeah, I like The First Purge. Really? Like, oh, shit. Yeah. Well, The so one with Ethan Hawke in it? No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, like, no, no, God damn it. Uh, but anyway, The First Purge is, in my opinion, easily the best of the franchise. I do like number two I'll quite a bit and Frank Grillo's really fun in it it's basically playing the Punisher and all that sort of stuff but the fourth one a really cool sort of way to tell a class system story uh Skeletor is terrifying I'd argue he's one of the best like main sort of antagonist of the series uh our main lead is a bad motherfucker super tough Mercer Tomei is on a lot of green screen which is unfortunate uh, but Arnett, I think it's just a super solid action horror. Heavier on the action than the horror, but when the horror and the scares and the gore is there, it's tense as fuck, and it's really well done. 
Uh, and then for my other one, I have actually Monsters University. Now, I know a lot of people might take a little bit of umbrage with this choice or this movie, which is fine. I, I get it. It's not as good as a lot of the Pixar ones, but it's super cute. And I watched it with my kid. I don't know how many times. I really love it. I think the animation is stellar in it. Uh, I just think it's a super, very solid, cute little movie. Potentially, other than the Toy Story movie sequels, the best sequel Pixar has done, in my opinion. And then for my bad, first I have X-Men Origins Wolverine. Um, I, you know, if anybody, again, you've probably picked up that I'm a huge comic book fan. I love the comic book movies. Maybe not so much anymore. I'm getting a little worn out by them. But I really, really loved them all the way up until probably, I don't know, Avengers Endgame was probably the last one I'm like super stoked on. And the rest of it just kind of like, okay. But so I was really excited for this. I'm like, a Wolverine origin story? This could be great. Like they had just recently done in the comics and gave him the James Howlett name and all this backstory that they never really told before. I'm like, this could be great. It's Hugh Jackman. Holy shit, leave Schreiber a saber tooth. That's interesting. Ryan Reynolds is Deadpool. Whoa, what the fuck? Holy shit, this is going to be great. It's the worst thing. It is so fucking stupid. It's clearly a movie written by people who have no idea what the comics are or even the movies that came before it are. Uh, populated by just the dumbest characters, the worst CGI, particularly Wolverine's Claws. The bathroom scene is a big noted one. The only good part of the movie is the opening sort of montage and Leif Schreiber a Sabretooth. Other than that, terrible, terrible film. And uh, very, very briefly, because I've only seen it once because it's so terrible. I have Dumb and Dumberer when Harry met Lloyd. Uh, it just, why? Why do we do this? And I mean, I'd even say that about the sequel, Dumb and Dumber 2. Uh, it's just, why are we doing this? I The first one, loved it when I was a kid. It is absolutely a movie of the year it came out. I still can watch it and get some chuckles out of it. Uh, but talk about a movie that never really needed a sequel, I would say it's Dumb and Dumber and really didn't need a prequel. Um, it's just it just fucking cash grab on every sort of feasible level there is. Well, um, I have seen all these trivia. I saw Dumb and Dumber in a theater before I'd ever seen the original Dumb and Dumber. Ouch. Yes, yeah. right. Yes, uh, it was very bad. Uh, though credit to um, this was going around when he unfortunately passed recently. But Bob Saget has the one good bit of that movie, where he in a really terrible setup about like somebody has like smeared shit all over like some a room in his house. He was like, "There is shit all over my walls." It's it's an actually genuinely fun delivery of that particular line. But otherwise, yeah, very terrible movie. And X Men Origins Wolverine is kind of like the poster child. For a bad prequel, especially like, oh, here's how he got his jacket. And oh, here's how he lost his memory with a fucking bullet or whatever. <laughs> and all this shit. Uh, one of many movies where Taylor Kitsch was like, oh, he's going to be a star. And then he popped up like, oh, no. Oh, Taylor, it's the beginning of the end for his career. It was really unfortunate for him. Um, and yeah, just a lot of bad, dumb shit. Well, easily one of the worst like comic book movies in recent memory for good reason. Um, and then... Yeah, the first Purge is my favorite of the Purge movies. Um, real shout out to especially the main actor, uh, Yolan Noel, uh, who plays like the main guy. I loved him in that movie. I want that dude to be like a big action star because he has like such a great charisma, especially when he goes like full on diehard 
in like the project housing near the end of the movie. Such a great fucking uh, hero back and forth with him with that uh, by the end of that. Yeah, aside from Marissa Tomei stuff, I think that one's very good, particularly with, you mentioned Skeletor, who's like this dude who is like being tasked, basically like, hey, why don't you go murder people for this first edition of The Purge and uh, we'll, you know, pay off or whatever. And he, th- that actor does such unsettling shit with his eyes and like the fucking his syringe hands and shit like that. So definitely my favorite of those movies. And then Monsters University, um... It's weird where I think the first two thirds are kind of like a fun, decent, like sort of parody of college movies. It's like fine for me, but I will say it's probably my one of my favorite third acts Pixar has ever had, where I really love that whole spoilers for Monster University. Uh, the fact that they kind of get dumped from college and they kind of realize like, well, this didn't work for us this way, but we can still like find our calling and get uh, some kind of like happy ending through a different means. I thought that was a really interesting, good message for kids. Actually, just because just you don't go the traditional route doesn't mean you can't have a fulfilling life in a different direction. I thought I, like, I really liked how that all ended up there. But it's time for my choices for prequels, and I also have some interesting uh, choices here. I'll go with first the more traditional prequel, which is a Ouija Origin of Evil, which this is a prequel to the 2014 film Ouija, from uh, this one being from director Mike Flanagan, who uh, we've talked about has like really gone up in the horror world as a reason. I think this is kind of the real start of his incline in terms of he took the premise of like, hey, you have to make a prequel to a really bad horror movie that made a lot of money. And you have to, like, do something with it. And he's just like, fine, I mean, I'll do something. And he made a pretty solid movie out of, like, really terrible beginnings with, like, basically it's about this um, family that lives in, like, the 1960s. And it's about, like, it's a single mom and her two younger daughters who have to deal with the cursed magic of this Ouija board. And it ties in kind of to, like, this one bit of the original movie with, like, Lin Shay that's really dumb. But it's basically about the younger version of Lin Shay's character, and it has a lot of scary moments. It has a lot of, like, really good performance, particularly Lulu Wilson, who we talked about with um, the Annabelle creation, another good prequel that is much better than its original source material. Um, it, it does such a great job of, like, taking very meager ingredients and making a really solid, effective family character-based horror movie out of it that I was really, really stunned by when it came out a few years ago. It deserves a lot more credit than I think it even gets to this day. Um, And then the other one I have is kind of also a sequel at the same time it's a prequel and a reboot. It's so weird. It has so many different permutations. And also it came out in the early 70s. It's Escape from the Planet of the Apes, where basically, if you don't know what the original Planet of the Apes, there were the first two movies, Planet of the Apes and Beneath the Planet of the Apes. And in Beneath, um, at the very end, Charlton Heston like didn't want to do any more of these movies, so he's like, well, I need you to end this all. So he's like, okay, we'll blow up the planet Earth, I guess, and we'll end the series here. But Beneath made a lot of money. So they're like, fuck, we need to make something else. You know, come up with something. It's like, okay, how about we take the Cornelius and Zira characters, who were the two uh, ape couple played by Ryan McDowell and Kim Hunter. How about we put them in some weird thing where it's like, oh, right before the planet blew up, they went in a spaceship and they got into a time warp and they ended up in early 1970s New York. So these apes that talk are walking around New York City and become celebrities initially. And it's kind of like this fun thing. But then as the movie goes along, it presents the idea of like, well, what if these talking apes showed up and how does that basically create the anti-ape um, sort of establishment of this, the government that wants to stop them from being a thing. And basically, the two characters create the Planet of the Apes 
by the end of the movie with the, the child that they have ending up being the first intelligent ape that will be able to speak, as is very detailed in, like, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes and uh, Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And I just love how they, like, were ca- caught in the corner with the ending of Beneath and just made this really, like, clever, funny, and brutally emotional by the end of its story about these two lovable characters who we liked in the original two movies and just saw them, like, you know, have a completely different situation in their lives and really become, like, these different fun-loving people and then actually start to potentially grow a family that tragically falls apart by the end of that movie so wonderfully. That one is, like, my second favorite of those original Apes movies. It's so stellar. And like I mentioned, it has this weird sequel-prequel vibe that is just so creative and new for particularly that series. Like, I want to do a Planet of the Apes episode mainly to talk about Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Such an underrated movie. Stellar little movie that I'd recommend. Uh, anybody, just go back and watch those old Apes movies. They're so fascinating. It's such weird early franchise filmmaking. <laughs> That's really interesting to go back to. And then my two bad ones, um, I'll start off with, you know, Speaking of a Fantastic Beast movie coming out this week, I have a Fantastic Beast Crimes of Grindelwald. It has all the same problems that we kind of talked about with, like, generally with prequels, but, like, oh, here's the origin of this point, this point, and they introduced Dumbledore in here. In this, like, prequel series, it was just supposed to be a side spinoff thing about Newt Scamander, this guy who, like, hunts around for, like, ma- magical beasts in the Harry Potter universe. Okay, that sounds like it could be fun. I think the first one is fine, if pretty forgettable, but at least sticks to that premise a bit more. By this second movie, and what's planned to be five movies, um, J.K. Rowling didn't give a flying fuck about any of that anymore. She's like, look, here's Dumbledore, and here's the origin of this spell, and oh, Grindelwald, now played by Johnny Depp. Isn't he so spooky? And it's just like, it's so long and dull and it's just like it's just Pottermore the movie it's all these things but like oh look here's these little tidbits and easter eggs about the the culture and all this other shit of wizarddom and it's like great is there anything interesting about the story no but here's another easter egg for you it's just like who gives a shit it's fucking bad really bad terrible movie um it pretty much swore me off Harry Potter even before J.K. Rowling made her dumb things all this other bullshit that she says but then uh the other bad one I have is a Star Wars prequel, but not the original three movies. I have Solo, a Star Wars story. And this one's a bit more upsetting because I think if you made this movie without Han Solo as the main character, it'd be a lot more fun because there's fun elements to it that I think could be really interesting if there's just like, oh, a random smuggler in the Star Wars universe. But the trouble is because it's Han Solo, we have to find out so much more about like, oh, here's how, once again, he got his blaster. Here's how he learned how to shoot first. Here's his fucking name, how he got the last name Solo, which is one of my like bottom moments in a Star Wars movie ever. I hate it so much. But if this was just like a completely different story where like Alden Ironwich played like San Holo, or whatever, some random new smuggler we didn't know about, and he went on some adventure where he didn't meet Lando Calories or have Chewie, like, didn't have that baggage on him, it'd probably be, like, a fun little slice of, you know, the Star Wars universe we hadn't seen before, but all the prequel elements just drag it down so much, despite some fun elements, particularly, I think, you know, Donald Glover's really fun as Lando Calrissian when he gets enough to do, but overall, I just think it's a very disappointing, bad movie that kind of killed the spin-off Star Wars movies for a reason. Okay, so I have seen all of yours as well. Um, yeah, Ouija Origin of Evil, super solid movie. Uh, you know, Mike Flanagan, just, you know, really, I, I agree. I think that's sort of the one where people are like, oh, this guy can polish a turd. The sequel to Ouija had no business being good, and it's really, really solid. 
Um, Escape from the Planet of the Apes is my favorite uh, of the original Apes movies. I own the poster. It's hanging on my wall right now. I think it is a terrific, terrific film. I, I love the acting. I love Ricardo Montalban in it. He just he kills me in that movie. He is going for the gusto, baby. Uh, but yeah, super solid movie. Lot, a lot of you know, kind of heavy shit in that movie too that people don't really give it. Uh, sort of the appreciation and realization for Fantastic Beast Two. I have tried three times to get through that movie. I can't do it. <laughs> and I have. I mean, it's just it's so dull. It is. I, other than the opening, like sort of chariot thunderstorm escape scene, which is pretty cool. But even then, it's pretty cool compared to another two hours of just bullshit. Uh, oh my god! Are you telling me? <gasps> She's Voldemort Snake. Oh God, I forgot about Voldemort right in the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh. who gives a fuck? It is so dull, so boring, and you just sort of feel bad for Eddie Redmayne the whole time because, like, this is no longer about your character or going to be your franchise, buddy. So just hope you have fun being awkward. I don't know. The only person I feel bad for is Dan Fogler, who's like, you finally found he's, a good part and he, in yeah, the first doing, movie. Yeah, he's actually doing really well, too, in the first movie. Um, and then Solo, yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with everything you said. I hate that's how he got his blaster. I hate that's how he got his name. I mean, that is one of the worst things ever. I hate that's how he learned to shoot first. I hate that that's how he met Chewbacca. I hate that at the very end of the movie, oh, I now I know about some gangs are willing to pay top money blah 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 i hate that we had to see what the castle run is just all of it all of it is just fucking it's such fan servicey bullshit with no heart behind it uh i completely agree if we would have got any other sort of original thing and i know they're doing the show for it say what you will about the character but even a character like the, the Cassian Andor character, like we don't need, necessarily need a movie about him, but an original character like that from Rogue One that, you know, people were like kind of endeared to and liked. We could do that instead of just going back to the well. And my least favorite part of Solo is uh, sort of the reveal where, you know, Darth Maul and Kira are together and he lights his lightsaber for some reason. Like, we don't know who it is. My favorite thing about that, I saw Solo with a friend of mine, and when we were walking out, he was just like, man, I don't know how, like, how old is Han Solo supposed to be? Because this takes place before episode one, right? Because Darth Maul shows up. I'm like, oh, no. There's a whole thing where, like, he, after he got cut in half, he got robot legs and other bullshit from, like, the Clone Wars show or whatever. It's such a weird thing that, like, only geeks about Star Wars will get it all. And most people going there were like, what? Yep. Why is Darth Maul back? That's weird. But I love that they think that people would be so stupid that if he didn't light his lightsaber, they might think it's somebody else. Right. Like, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you, Rod Howard. <laughs> fuck you, Disney. Like, you fucking idiots. Fuck I mean, you. definitely one of those where, like, the whole thing with, like, Lord Miller leaving, I'm sure, yep. you know, there were, like, some conflicts, but I'm sure they would have made a more interesting movie. At least, as opposed yeah. to whatever that was. Interesting at least. Right. And compared yeah. to the Borfest that is solo. Right. Yeah. Well, it's uh, let's repeat our titles here for everybody in case uh, you missed them, Adam. Uh, for my good, I had the first purge in Monsters University, and for my bad, I had Dumb and Dumber when Harry met Lloyd and X Men Origins Wolverine. And then uh, my two good picks were Escape from the Planet of the Apes and Ouija: Origin of Evil. And my two bad ones were Solo: A Star Wars Story and Fantastic Beasts: 
The Crimes of Grindelwald. We want to thank some people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used for our show. Listen more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water uh, on Twitter and stuff like that to find a link tree and all his other great artwork. And then, of course, we want to thank our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash gedbpod, where for just a $1 a month, you all get to participate in, uh, you know, polls uh, where you pick movies like uh, Carlito's Way Rise to Power. You helped us pick that. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. And uh, you get to listen to bonus podcasts as well. Like uh, around the time this episode comes out, we will have put out uh, one of the in-person recordings Adam and I did around the 200th episode where we cover uh, the first season of Peacemaker, the DC show starring John Cena. Uh, we have a little mini media discussion of sorts uh, about it and uh, it was a fun in-person recording you can hear. as one of those rare ones, only behind the paywall. Yeah, baby. Peacemaker's great. Well, yes. To find out the details, just become a patron. Become an Edgelord patron over patreon.com slash pod. But uh, for more of our antics outside of the paywall, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at pod. And uh, you can also submit feedback to us, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And uh, for more of my own individual stuff, find me on Twitter and Letterboxd as at NotTheWho'sTommy. I also do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at Film-Cred.com. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. You can also find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. And uh, for more of the podcast, if you want to listen further, uh, please uh, follow us over on places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, any place where you can find podcasts out there. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, you want to listen to all the other great shows on the network, or uh, dig through our archives on our Podbean main feed for several episodes before we even join Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't support us monetarily on the Patreon, the completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around to give us more visibility. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you to everybody who's been doing that. We see you, believe me. Uh, we really appreciate it. Even fucking uh, Christian Alvarez. Yeah, thanks, Christian. Woo-hoo, such a good guy. Oh, yeah. Begrudging endorsement of our favorite friend, Christian yeah, Alvarez. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And now it's time we did our picking for uh, next week's episode. Uh, basically, like I mentioned at the top of the show, every week Adam and I pick a good and a bad feature uh, related to a topic, and we switch up on the quality of who has good and who has bad for each individual episode. And uh, keep in mind, uh, we assign those each a number between 1 and 10. And the other person picks numbers between 1 and 10 usually, and that gets us our good and our bad feature. But also, there's the Godfather rule that's still in effect, where uh, basically uh, Adam and I were given a veto last May uh, that expires upon the next anniversary, so coming up next month, uh, where we can only use it once, and uh, if we hear one person say a specific choice and we feel we don't want to have that particular choice, we say, actually, I'll take the cannoli. So that gets us our one opportunity to veto a particular choice and go with whatever the other choice is that the other person would reveal. Um, Adam has already used his, and I still have mine burning that hole. Uh, so Adam has the two good, he shows the number between one and ten for, and I have the two bad for next week's topic, which there's a bit of an unfortunateness attached to this topic in terms of um, if you're 
you know, been all aware of the news recently. Bruce Willis, one of our great movie stars, recently announced he was going to be retiring because uh, he was recently diagnosed and is dealing with aphasia, which is basically a form of uh, like memory loss and issues with speaking his lines and memorizing his lines and stuff like that, which um, was a real shame to hear, especially considering, mm-hmm. you know, some of the recent movies that we've admittingly made jokes about on and off sure, mic. Sure. Right, because we weren't aware, obviously, of what this was since he just announced what it was. And um, it puts those movies in a different light. Maybe those producers look a lot more shitty for taking advantage of a man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame. It is a real shame. But we always wanted to do an episode about Bruce Willis, but we never quite found the right time to. And we figured, you know, what we would like to celebrate the man's work because we want to emphasize that like we're not trying to exploit anything about that dude ourselves here because we're fans of when he's when he was so fucking great it was so good with bruce willis like there's a reason why like john mcclain and Die Hard became such a massive cultural figure in like action cinema of hollywood he's like there's so i have so many great memories of bruce willis even whether it is like the action stuff comedy or even the drama stuff he would do we've like praised him like unbreakable we did on an older mm-hmm. episode and that's one of my favorite performances of his oh yeah mine too 100 percent. yeah i mean bruce willis has been a mainstay as long as i can remember so yeah i mean why not celebrate such an illustrious career for sure given the nature of our show they're obviously good and bad movies to choose from um i want to emphasize as someone who say picking the bad movies the bad movies i have as my choices are at least fascinating movies that are worth talking about in the context of his career not so much say any of the recent bullshit movies that right. feel like a bit more exploitative it's it, we're definitely trying to like look back at a person's career with a bit of like you know fascination at the bad stuff but also appreciation of the good stuff that's what we like doing on the show so you know something like this happens where it's somebody who's gone through something terrible or somewhere like the person has passed we mean no ill will toward the person the subject by any means oh yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. but now adam you have the two good picks i have my two bad picks for the career of Mr. Bruce Willis, um, I'm going to pick number six. Okay. At number six on the dot, I have a movie that I really, really enjoy. It's one that's not often talked about, but I think it's a tight suspense movie. I have 16 blocks with Bruce Willis and most stuff. You know what? I'm going to take the cannoli on that. What? Not a 16 blocks fan. Oh, you had to use it. Look at you. All right. All right. Well, at number two, I have 12 monkeys. Oh, fuck yeah. Good use of that cannoli. Oh, I'm so glad I took that. Oh, mom. Oh, t- leave the gun and take that fucking cannoli. Yeah, 12 monkeys. Hell yeah. Great. Uh, all right. I give like 16 blocks is the one that got gotcha. you. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it was burning that hole, and it's just like, at this point, it's become a thing of, like, if I hear something, like, I don't want to cover, like, nope, out of it, <laughs> gone, great. Fair okay, enough. Okay, well, now I only have a couple weeks until I get a new one anyway. <laughs> right, dick. Uh, okay, well, for your bad, then, I will go number nine. Okay. At number eight, I have a movie I haven't seen before. But from what I've heard, it's like a cultural object of Willis. I've, I've been waiting basically for this episode to finally watch it. It's his uh, 1991 passion project, 
Hudson Hawk. Oh, fuck. Oh, God. All right. Oh, God. Okay. Jesus. And what was your other one? Well, on the other side of things, um, over at number one, I had Blind Date. Oh, good lord. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Fucking hell. Look, like I said, I didn't want to pick any of the recent really bad ones. No, and, no. And Hudson Hawk at least sounds very fascinating to me from what I've heard. Just like, oh, this is like a, a famous train wreck of a movie that I'm curious to see. <laughs> okay. So 12 Monkeys and Hudson Hawk. That's a, that's a double feature. Well, and now it's time uh, we get out of here, Adam. And on that note, goodbye, everybody. What in the fuck was that? <laughs>